And as you get settled and you get your Bible, make your way to the New Testament book of James. If you've been with us at all in the last month or so, you know that we're spending the summer going through the New Testament letter of James, working our way through this great letter that the pastor, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of our Lord and Savior Jesus himself, wrote to God's people who have been scattered throughout a region because of persecution. Many of them were facing the loss of their life for their faith in Christ, and Pastor James writes them this letter. And if you're anything like me and you've been with us at all going through James, maybe this is true for you as well, but James has been doing some significant renovation work in my heart. If I could wear an under construction t-shirt up here to in some way demonstrate and communicate the work that God is doing in my own heart through the writing of Pastor James, I wish I, I could. It's, it's taking me apart by grace and thank God it's putting me back together again by grace. I honestly believe, and multiple people have sent emails or, or commented about this over the last few weeks, I honestly believe a, a day will come 10, 12 years down the road when we'll look back and say the time we spent in this particular book, the time that we were together going through the letter of James, God used in a way to transform the life of this church. I think God has a significant impact to make in the life of this church through what he's saying in this letter that James wrote to the church scattered in Jerusalem. And the battle that James is fighting is a battle that we're all too familiar with, which is one reason why I think it's so impactful when we slow down and think about it. James is fighting the battle of self-deception. We've talked over and over throughout this letter so far that every single one of us has a unique capacity to believe that something is true. And simply because we believe it's true, we then believe that it's actually true about ourselves. And so from the very beginning of this letter, James has been doing a battle against self-deception. He's warned very clearly throughout the first chapter in this letter that we are not to be deceived, that it's very easy for us to deceive ourselves about ourselves, in particular when we try to understand what's going on in our own hearts. We can so easily deceive ourselves. He gave us that most clear and graphic illustration in chapter one of, of self-deception as someone who can go into the word of God and can listen to the voice of God through his word like one who looks into a mirror and sees all that they need to do in the morning but then walks away completely unchanged, deceived into thinking that what they heard and what they saw to be true was, was really true about themselves. So at the end of the first chapter, if you were with us, James tries to sum up for God's people what true religion really is, what, what true Christianity really is. Chapter 1, verse 26, listen to what James actually says. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, his religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. True religion is not the ability to pit good deeds against good theology. True religion is not seen or, or reflected in a life that chooses to do good things for others or chooses moral righteousness. It's, it's both and. We don't get that option. And James takes his definition of true and undefiled religion before the Lord and he's going to build the rest of the letter out in fleshing these things out for God's people. And so we find ourselves this morning in chapter 2, in particular in the second half of chapter 2, 
where James is again doing battle against self-deception, helping God's people to identify and understand what true and pure religion really is before the Lord and, and what he's doing most specifically for God's people and for us this morning is to help us identify and define and be able to, to locate and, and see what living faith really is. What living faith in the heart really is. And he does it by comparing and contrasting it to what he calls dead faith or useless faith. He doesn't want us to fall prey to self-deception. He's doing battle against the deception that you and I so easily fall prey to. And he, he wants us to distinguish living faith from dead faith, lest we wind up deceived. And, and so if you've got your Bibles in James chapter two, let's just read where we are again, and then we'll pick up where we left off last week. Let's go back to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is Let's pray together this morning and then dive back in. Father, thank you. Thank you for the rich privilege of being gathered together with one another. Lord, thank you for the privilege we have and to be able to listen to your word, to be able to read your word, or to be able to hear your word read, sung, prayed, taught. And we ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would take your living and active word would surrender our hearts, still our hearts, and surrender our hearts this morning to your word. Lord, we don't want to walk out deceived. This morning we ask that you would do the miracle that only you can do, that you would help us to see where in our own hearts and our own lives we fall and pray to self-deception. Lord, we want to confess that, to turn away from that. Lord, show us this morning what living faith really is. Lord, help us to identify where it's not present in our lives where we don't want to be deceived. And so we ask for your glory, for our joy and transformation. You would do the miracle that only you can do, and we ask that you would do it in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes this particular section of James chapter 2 so difficult and so confusing sometimes is that James uses words that are used in other places in the scriptures, and he uses them in ways they're not used in other places. Now, I've been on a, a J.C. Ryle kick lately. I've been reading some of Ryle's works that I've collected in the library and just haven't had a chance to read. And 
I was reading this week and he said something tremendously profound and I think it has great application to what we're doing in James chapter two this morning. Listen to what Ryle said. Ryle said, it can be laid down as a rule with a tolerable confidence that the absence of accurate definitions is the very life of religious controversy. If men would only define with precision the theological terms which they use, many disputes would actually die. Scores of excited disputants would discover that they don't really differ at all and that their disputes have arisen from their own neglect of the great duty of explaining the meaning of words. James chapter 2 becomes so confusing and, and has been that has been the locus of so much conflict and chaos in the life of God's people and the life of the church for centuries simply because many times we don't take the time to slow down and to define the words, to look at how James is using different terms in light of how the Bible defines various terms. In James chapter 2, James is trying to help us understand on the big picture that there really are two types of faith, living faith and dead faith. Useful faith towards God and love towards neighbor and useless faith. James is not using this word faith as we read it in talking about immature faith, not talking about cold faith or weak faith. He's talking about living faith and dead faith. One that can save and one that can't. One that's useful and one that's not. One that's evidenced. One that can be clearly seen. One that's visible. One that actually produces fruit. And one that doesn't. One that's seen and most evidenced in a clear love for God. And a love for God that overflows clearly in love for neighbor. James wants us to understand the difference between living faith and dead faith. He wants us to be clear. And most importantly, he wants us to be honest. He doesn't want us to be deceived. The consequences for self-deception when it comes to understanding what living faith is and what dead faith is could not be greater. And so if you were with us last week, you may remember, and if you weren't, we'll try to catch you up to where we are so that you can understand the bigger argument that James is making when he's talking about living faith and dead faith. Last week, we looked at the first illustration James gives us, and in a sense, the last illustration James gives us, and we saw the argument that he was making in that living faith is clearly evidence. Living faith is clearly seen in love for neighbor. When James had been reminding God's people of the royal law, that Jesus' summation of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. James's argument is that living faith produces in the life of a believer real love for God that overflows in love for neighbor and a real love for God, a real presence of living faith. The roots of living faith alive in the heart are evidenced by the fruit of love for your neighbor. He showed us what living faith looks like as it's evidenced in the life of a believer in love for others through the illustration of Rahab. When we looked at Rahab and how the living faith that was present in her life was evidenced in the way that she loved and treated and served the spies of Israel who had come into the land. But James also showed us the negative side, what living faith is not, and in essence, what dead faith is. 
when he gave us the example of how someone may respond to a destitute or poor brother or sister who comes and, and is in need of clothing or in need of food, and the response that they get is simply, go in peace. Be warmed and well-fed. I, I, I hope you can find a sandwich. You look hungry. May God be with you. May God go with you because I'm not going. James says, real living faith. Living faith. Go back to what he said earlier. Pure and undefiled religion before the Lord. The roots of the gospel sowing down deep into the heart of a person is seen, is evidenced in love for neighbor. So verse 17, he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, if it doesn't have fruit, it's dead. There's a living faith and there's a dead faith. But this week, we're going to focus on the two illustrations in the middle. So if you think of this second half of James chapter 2 and you think about it the way we talked about last week, broken up by these illustrations, the first illustration and the last illustration, the bookends, they illustrate dead faith and living faith in relation to love for neighbor, in relation to the fruit of living faith in love towards neighbor, but the two in the middle. Think about it like an outline, the two in the middle. The two illustrations he gives right there in the middle of this particular section, they're going to deal with what living faith looks like in relation to love towards God. Living faith, James is going to argue, produces the fruit in the life and in the heart of a believer of real love for God. And it's simply the argument of this, but out of that love for God ultimately flows the love for neighbor. So James is going to start this particular argument that living faith produces the fruit of love for God by illustrating for us what dead faith is. See, James is going to start by showing us what living faith is not. And he he does it in an interesting way. Look at verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith and and I have works. He's, He's introducing kind of an imaginary questioner here. And someone who's asking for clarification, who's responding to what he's already said. Someone will say, you have faith and and I have works. Well, here's how James responds. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So he's just anticipating a a common response that someone may have to what he's already said. When he says living faith produces real fruit, in particular, love for neighbor. The argument is simply this, and it may sound familiar to some of you. You have faith and I have works. You have that gift, I have this gift. You believe and I do things. They're they're different. God gave you faith and he gave me works. And remember, James has already said, excuse me, that pure and undefiled religion before the Lord is simply this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself, not or. Not picking and choosing which one we will follow. James is saying there's a common argument amongst people that simply says this, oh, you believe more than I do. You have a special gift, but I do more than you do. That's my gift. James is not talking about the spiritual gift of faith that the apostle Paul mentions in the book of Romans. He's talking about the difference between a living faith and a dead faith. James is arguing the the point of this. How can you have a true living faith and it not be seen in an increasingly transformed life? I'll show you my living faith. Here's how you'll know the living faith in me is real. I'll show you my living faith by my transformed life. That's what James is saying. These aren't two separate things. You don't get to have faith and you get to have works. True living faith is evidenced by a transformed life. 
If someone claims to have faith in Christ but, but only seems to possess right ideas, right information or right knowledge and not any transformation, James is saying that that person is deceived. And to drive that point home, he, he gets to this next point. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. That's the first part of the royal law. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, he, he's one. He's one. You do well. That is the soundest of doctrine you can have. In fact, a good Israelite would, would say that every single day. Called the Shema. He would say it every single day. James would say, you actually believe that the Lord your God is one. That is orthodox. It's theologically accurate. It is a right understanding of who God is. That's great. Even the demons believe that and shudder. See, James is saying there's a knowledge that even demons have that's perfectly good. And guess what? They're still just a demon. I came across last week a, a sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached, and he preached about this one verse. James chapter 2, verse 19. And do you know what the title of the, of the sermon was? True grace distinguished from the experience of devils. Now, a whole sermon on James 2, 19. And, and really, honestly, if I, if I really loved you the way I, I say I love you, I would just have read that sermon to you this morning. It, it's that potent of a sermon. The trap of self-deception is so strong we really could just stop and I could have translated Edwards into a way that you might have understood and just read you that sermon this morning. So let me try to paraphrase it the best that I, I can. Edwards will argue that the demons have sound doctrine. They know and believe that God is one, that he's holy, that he's sovereign, and the knowledge of the truth about who God is causes them to actually shudder. They have an intellectual understanding of who God is and they have an emotional response related to what they know to be true. And so Edwards argues in his sermon that it's actually possible for human beings to know that God is great, to believe that God is great, and to be scared of punishment from God so much so that they even alter our behavior and become a very moral person, even an incredibly religious person. And Edwards says this, all of your religion and all of your morality is nothing but shuddering. All of it, your morality, all of your good religion, it simply qualifies you, Edward says, to be a demon. The demons have intellectual knowledge. They even have an emo emotional response to it. Yet they're still demons. See, living faith is more than just having right information and even having an emotional response. And I couldn't help but think in my own life, in the history of my own walk with the Lord, how much of what I would look at as confidence in faith and, and Christian living was simply the shuddering of demons. I mean, how many times, how many nights, how many weeks, or even in the past, how many years did I lie awake wondering, based on my emotions, whether or not God really loved me? See, the, the argument that James is making and the argument that Edwards is making is that having right knowledge about God and even the right sense to obey because he's powerful doesn't mean you have living faith. I couldn't help but even think of what Pastor Raymond was talking about on our last Family Sunday. 
When he was talking about statistics that say some 70% of young people, when they leave home or leave the church, actually leave Christianity. As I thought about James chapter 2, verse 19, and I was thinking about what Edwards was saying about Christianity, I couldn't help but think, well, maybe they're not leaving anything. Maybe all that we have done is disciple the 70% to have nothing more than the faith of demons. They know just enough to be scared enough to comply long enough. And see, the argument that James makes and the argument that Edwards is going to make, and we're going to come back to it in a little while, is that real living faith does not produce in the heart of God's people this kind of servile fear. See, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, where, where this comes from, when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, it's followed by an immediate consequence. That there's something else that comes after that, and it's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Because the Lord is one, you shall love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. See, the argument that James is making is simply this. Dead faith may know and believe right things about God, but dead faith never produces in the heart of man a love for God. They may confess this God, but they don't love him. There's no peace. I mean, John's going to say later that, that perfect love, it casts out all fear like this. Dead faith does not produce in the heart of man love for God. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that apart from faith or faith apart from works is useless? Do you want to be shown that this dead faith, no matter what right understanding you have and no matter what, what things you do out of fear and punishment, do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? That it's empty? James is going to now help God's people to understand again what living faith really is. He's shown us what it's not. Now he wants us to see what it is. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Now look at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Here's where the ultimate of midair collisions takes place in trying to understand what James is saying. This is why J.C. Ryle would say scores of excited disputants would discover they don't differ and that all their disputes have arisen from their own neglect of the great duty of explaining the meaning of words. The lack of the explanation of the meaning of words is why these verses cause so much confusion. So let me give you an illustration as to why it's so important. A couple of weeks ago, my family was driving down the road and we came to a stoplight. My kids are fascinated with license plates. They point out all the different states. They're, trying to find, they're always trying to find all 50 states. They're fascinated by certain personalized license plates. And there was a plate in front of us that said this, W-H-O-O-S, who's bad. And my son looked at it and said, who's bad? What does that mean? So I explained to him W-H-O-S. I explained to him UVA. I explained to him the who's. And he said, oh, they must be a Virginia Tech fan. And I said, no. And he said, it says who's bad. So I spent the next five minutes going through 20 years of cultural history <laughs> to explain to him that bad doesn't always mean bad. Bad in certain circumstances actually means good. 
And once he understood that bad sometimes means good, I then had to talk to him about Michael Jackson. And I had to talk to him about who's bad. And once he understood Michael Jackson and who's bad, and then he understood who's meant UVA, and he, he put it all together. But sometimes, sometimes words mean more than one thing. The same can be said of the word justified. In the Bible, the word justified can be used in two distinct ways. The first way the word justified can be used is to to mean or be defined as to make yourself right or to be made right. So an example would be you you, you owe someone a debt or you owe a, a creditor a debt and you pay it. What have you done? You've made yourself right with that person. You've made yourself right or just with that company, with your creditor. You've been made right, put in right standing. But the exact same word can be used another way, and you see it in the Bible. That exact same word justified can be used to mean to prove yourself right. And so if I ask you to justify the statement you just made, am I asking you to prove to me that it's true? Yes. I'm not asking you to make it true. I'm asking you to demonstrate, give me evidence, prove to me that what you just said is true. Justify to me the statement you just made. Justified can be used both ways. To be made right with someone or to make yourself right with something or to justify, to give evidence, to demonstrate that you're right. Why does that matter at all? Romans chapter three, verse 28, the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He says this, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James chapter two, verse 24, writing to the church scattered outside of Jerusalem. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. One is justified by faith apart from works. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. The seeming tension between Paul and James has caused great men, including Martin Luther, Luther, to actually say this. I think as a people, we should throw Jimmy in the fire. That's what Paul said about James chapter 2, verse 24. Are Paul and James at odds? It's not a trivial matter. The gospel's at stake in understanding whether or not Paul and James are at odds. Listen, Paul and James, they're not saying different things from one another. Paul and James are not contradicting each other. Paul and James are both declaring the same glorious gospel. They're just doing it from different vantage points for different reasons. You can go back and and read it sometime this week. Acts chapter 15, the great Jerusalem council. You can read more about it in Galatians chapter 2. The apostle Paul goes to Jerusalem and he goes to meet with the apostles to make sure that what he's teaching to the Gentiles is actually the truth. Listen to what he says. Listen, just listen to him. Galatians chapter two. I went to Jerusalem to set before them the gospel, the good news that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I'm not running or had not run in vain. And then Paul says, when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and myself that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. 
Paul had gone to Jerusalem. Paul had met with James and the apostles. Paul had talked to them about the gospel that he preached, that we are, are not saved by what we do, but we're saved by the free grace of God, justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And James said, amen. Amen. Go tell as many people as will listen to you about the glorious grace of God. When we think about Paul and James, when we think about Romans 3, and we think about James chapter 2, what you've got to see are not two combatants at odds with each other, but, but think about it like two Roman soldiers standing side by side, shields covering each other, going to battle with, with one another against enemies of the gospel. Both are saying the same thing. They're just coming at it from different vantage points. Paul is battling the great challenge of legalism the argument and the belief that some people had that they could actually do enough things or do the right things in such a way as to earn forgiveness or salvation from God. James is coming in against a different argument. And James is arguing against this counterfeit faith idea. This idea that we can have a right understanding about God and yet that right understanding about God not actually transform us and yet we'd be okay. That we can be deceived into believing that the right information that we have is enough to secure for us salvation from God. Both are applying and teaching the same gospel, but they're both coming at it from different perspectives and vantage points. And we've got to understand the way they use the words. They even use the word works in similar but yet different ways. You'll often find Paul used this exact same word that James uses here in James chapter 2 talking about works is referring to works of the flesh. Paul will say there are things that we think that we can do that come from a fleshly attempt to earn something from God. Paul will argue against things like circumcision. He'll even argue against good things like particular worship practices and say that if they're done out of a heart that tries to do those things to earn something from God, they're actually works of the flesh. But then James uses the same word 15 times in this letter. And all 15 times James uses that exact same word, he speaks about it positively. Every single time he talks about these works coming from a heart of a root of living faith, it produces good works in the life that give evidence to the fact that that living faith is there. Same thing Jesus said. We've looked at it in the last couple of weeks. How will you know who, the, who's, who his disciples are? You'll know them by their fruit, Jesus said. Paul even says to the church in Ephesus that we were created for these good works. Galatians 5, the same one we were just reading a minute ago from Galatians 2. Galatians 5 says, Paul says that what counts is faith expressing itself through love. So works, there can be works of flesh, but there are also works of righteousness. There are works that come from a faith, a living faith in God that demonstrate the fact that that faith is there. Words matter. James is fighting one thing. Paul's fighting another thing. Both of them defending the same gospel. And guess what's fun about it? If that's not interesting enough, both of them use Abraham as their illustration for their argument. See, if you can use Abraham to illustrate your argument, you've won. So Paul uses Abraham to illustrate his argument that justification before God, right standing with God comes by faith alone and not through works and he uses Abraham. James says that faith alone is not enough. It has to be de-evidenced. To know that the faith is real within you, it needs to be seen in the way that you actually live. And he uses Abraham as evidence for that argument as well. It's, it's kind of fun. Here's the thing, though. I know this coming in. I know that the argument that Paul is making, 
the counterfeit faith that he's fighting and the counterfeit faith that James is fighting, I know that the seeds of those are, are, are present in this room. It's why we plead the way we do with God every single Sunday before we get up here. It's why I plead with God to help open up the eyes of our hearts and in my heart, even while I'm preaching, because I know the seeds of these two things are in me as well. And so just listen real quick to how James uses Abraham to illustrate for us that living faith actually produces real love for God and is seen then in obedience to God. James builds his argument from two places in the life of Abraham, and you find them in Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 15, you can go back and read it this week, God promises Abraham that we will give him a son, and from his son, his descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 says this, that Abraham believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. James is, is referencing Genesis 15, 6 here in chapter 2. But time passes between Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 22. Some scholars say it was up to 30 years. In Genesis chapter 21, God fulfills the promise that he made to Abraham and he gives him a son. Isaac is born. But then in chapter 22, God says to Abraham, take your son, the son of promise, and go up to the mountain and sacrifice him. I promise to give you this son, and from this son, you will have descendants that will outnumber the stars in the sky. They'll outnumber the sands on the seashore. Take the son, I promise you now, and go sacrifice him. What does Abraham do? You know the story? Abraham obeyed God. Abraham obeyed God even when it meant a great cost to him. Even when it didn't seem to make sense to him. And if you know the story, you know that in Genesis chapter 22, God provided for Abraham a substitute sacrifice in Isaac's place. Isaac didn't actually have to die. And the argument that James is making when it comes to what living faith really is and what it looks like is that Abraham did what he did in Genesis chapter 22 in being willing to take his son Isaac up to the top of the mountain and offer him up as a sacrifice because he believed God in Genesis chapter 15. That the faith that God says he credited to Abraham as righteousness, the faith that actually believed God that made him right before God was seen in what he did in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 and his willingness to obey God and sacrifice his son is the fruit of the faith that was alive in Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. His faith produced that work. His faith produced that kind of obedience. The only way Abraham would do what he was willing to do was if he truly trusted God. Living faith produced the fruit of obedience in Abraham's life. But there's something else Paul said, I mean, James says in, in chapter 2, verse 22, Abraham's faith was completed by his works. Now, that's a familiar word if you've been here with us at all through James because it's the same word James uses in chapter 1. That word complete means to bring to maturity to grow up, to bring it to its intended goal. And the picture that James is painting here of Abraham and for us is that these kinds of works of obedience, these kinds of fruit are produced by faith and the goal of those works is faith. Maturity. The more we trust in God, the more we obey God. Faith produces that obedience and the more that we obey, the more that we grow to trust in God, the more our faith continues to mature. It's like a cycle. The longer we walk with God and the longer we see his faithfulness to us, the more we trust him. 
And the more we trust him, the more freely we obey him. The more we freely obey him, the more we trust him, the more complete, the more mature our faith becomes. See, our good works, our deeds, are the fruit, James says, of living faith. They don't earn right standing before God. They give evidence of it. Paul and James are are both fighting against this idea that that in different ways you can do different things to earn love, to earn forgiveness, to earn right standing before God. And the reality of it is, right standing before God comes by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone, but it's never alone. That's what Luther used to say. You're saved by faith alone, yes, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's always evidenced by a transformed life. You can always see living faith because living faith produces fruit. So I hope by the grace of God, we we can make clear sense of what James says here at the end because that's really the point of what he's trying to say. Verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Not by faith alone. James is talking about dead faith versus living faith. James is talking about dead faith. It it cannot work. It cannot save. But living faith is never alone. So what does it mean to be justified by our works? Well, remember how James uses the word. How did we know that Abraham possessed real faith, living faith before God? Genesis chapter 22, we saw it in his willingness to obey God. He was justified in the sense that his obedience demonstrated the presence of living faith in his heart. Living faith produced the fruit of obedience in the life of Abraham. Abraham was justified, not made right before God by his works, but was justified, proved to be right before God by his obedience. In that sense, James is saying we are justified by our works. Our works, our transformed life, our deeds, they give evidence to the presence of living faith in our heart. James wants us to avoid the trap that says, I believe in God, I know all right things about God, but my life doesn't matter. How I live doesn't matter because I know what I'm supposed to believe. James is saying, don't fall prey in that trap. Your your works, they matter. They give evidence that the faith in your heart truly is alive. And so when Paul says you're justified by faith and not by works, James is standing in the crowd saying, amen. Clapping his hands. Go tell as many people as will listen. And when James stands up before the church and says you're justified by works and not faith alone, Paul's standing in the crowd saying amen. The faith alone that comes by by the grace of God that saves is never alone. It, It always comes with a transformed life. Preach, James. Paul and James are declaring the same glorious gospel but from two different vantage points. Cold faith, dead faith, James says, cannot save. Living faith, though, Living faith that saves, that's fruitful, that's effective in producing real love for neighbor produces real love for God in the heart. It doesn't produce the shivering fear of demons. Living faith produces the fruit of friendship with God. See, back to Edwards. 
Edwards said that dead faith, this counterfeit faith, this false faith, it can see that the holiness of God, it can see the wisdom of God, it can see the greatness and power of God, it can even see something of the love of God, but the one thing dead faith can never see, Edward says, is the loveliness of God. Edward said, when Christians come to see the loveliness of God in the face of his son Jesus, it's not difficult to conceive how the blood of Christ should be esteemed so precious as to be worthy and accepted as a compensation for the greatest of sinners. And Edwards goes on to close that sermon out and to argue in this whole chapter that when you see the loveliness of God, in particular in the face of Christ, you'll want to obey. You'll want your life to produce the fruit of good works because you trust God and you delight in him and he's your friend. That's why Edwards says the ultimate evidence of living faith the ultimate evidence of justification by works, being justified by your deeds, is Abraham's obedience. He trusted God, he believed God, he loved God, was his friend, and so he obeyed. See, we said it last week, I'll say it this week as we close, James gives us the gift of self-examination. He wants to rescue us from self-deception. So let me ask you this as we begin to prepare to respond. Is, is your life, is your life, all of your religiosity, is it just shuddering? Ask God to show you. It's a gift, self-examination by the grace of God. It, it comes as a gift. Is all of your life, is your religiosity, is it nothing more than the shuddering of demons or is it a transformed desire for the friendship that comes from seeing the one that is even truly greater than Abraham himself. Do you have faith, living faith, not just intellectual belief? Do you trust in God as your savior and as your Lord and as your king in a, in a way that radically changes everything about your life? Do you have faith in him? This morning as we prepare to respond to God's word by receiving communion together, it's important to remember that God was a father and he too walked up a mountain with his son. Yet this father sacrificed his son. God went through with it. Living faith looks at God sacrificing his son in your place for your sins and says what God said to Abraham, now I know you love me for you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love for me. Does your heart go out to that? Do you want his friendship? Is all that matters that you know him? And that's living faith. Do you have it? In just a few minutes, we're going to come forward and receive communion. I encourage you this morning to fix your eyes, fix your heart on the elements of communion. Consider what they represent, the body of Christ broken in your place for your sin, the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sin, and, and ask God to show you areas in your life where you're not wholeheartedly trusting in him, where there may be no real fruit of living faith, and confess, confess to him your desire to trust him. Let your heart be warmed this morning by his love. Let the living faith that he shows you that's alive in your heart, let it produce the new fruit of obedience. 
And if you're here this morning and you've, you've never trusted Christ, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, I want to urge you this morning that this could be for you the day of your salvation. If you realize that all of your religiosity and everything that you've been doing is nothing more than the shuddering of demons, you're simply afraid. You know him, but you don't know the love for him in your heart. I encourage you this morning to trust him, to ask him to save you, to make you to know in a profound way, even this morning, the reality of his love for you in Christ. Confess to him that you can't save yourself, that you can't do it, that you need him, and that you trust him. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to respond. Father, thank you. Thank you for not allowing us to walk away deceived. Lord, we want for every heart in this place this morning, every heart to be alive with living faith towards you. Lord, where there's deception, where there's confusion, where there's nothing more than the shuddering of demons, expose it that it might be confessed and repented of for your glory and our joy this morning. And where there's living faith, Lord, expose it, show it. Let it be a reminder of confidence and assurance of your love for us and let it be fanned into a greater and greater flame for you. We ask that you would do this this morning for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.